this is Michael Osterlink, and I'm with Derek Von Orden. He is the author of Book of Man, A Navy SEAL's Guide to Lost Art of Manhood. How are you doing, Derek? I'm well. Thank you very much. How about you? Fantastic. Good to have you on. Uh, you're well, a 26-year Navy SEAL veteran. Thank you for your service, first of all. You're welcome. And you recently came out with this book, an amazing book. I read it over the summer, and I'm, I'm glad to have been uh, learned about it actually on Twitter. It's a great way of finding about new authors such as yourself. Mm -hmm. Great read, uh, very entertaining, and I want to get in kind of the entertaining side of things because you're quite the funny writer, as well as Thank I you. learn a lot on the things that young men or men in general actually should know in our culture. Okay. But before we get there, I'm, I'm qu quite curious on what has happened to our culture the past many years that requires someone like you to write a book that teaches young men things you think they should already know but obviously our culture has turned us in a different direction. Okay, yeah. Um, it seems that a few years ago, and I would say maybe back into the 70s-ish and into the 80s when the macho thing started coming out, that the concept of manhood itself became a joke. Where if you look at a sitcom, really almost anyone on television now, and if you look who the buffoon in the show is, it's it's always the father, right. which is right. interesting. It's never the wife. The kids are always smart, and, but it's always the the man, the male figure in the house is the person that is the the butt of the jokes. Well, what I find interesting is that um, there are millions of American men, and I identify as a heterosexual male. There are millions of American men that wake up every single morning, like I do, and they go out into the world and they try to make the world a better place for their family and they try to earn an income to make the lives of their family specifically better. And if you, you blow that across the world and you look that there are hundreds of millions of men that do exactly the same thing. In the military there are hundreds of thousands of men that literally, and women, but again I, I identify as a heterosexual male, there are hundreds of thousands of men that, that literally put their lives at risk so that we can live in freedom, so that you and I can sit here across this digital link and talk to each other. That's not a joke. It's not a joke and it's not funny. Um, I, I don't have a big chip on my shoulder about this, but at some point you're like, hey, wait a minute. You know, We are, meaning men and women, particularly the, the men that I discuss in this book, are doing something and we are a productive member of society. We are an integral part of the bedrock, the foundation of who we are as a country and as a family unit. So I decided to, to write this book. I mean, it started as a funny thing. A uh, few seals that I was with in Peachy Dungy, Chile, were out uh, hiking on a mountain. We had the weekend off. We were training with some of our counterparts. But uh, I was always the intelligence representative for a platoon, so I had the camera with me. We break through the crowd uh, up into the cloud line where it's uh, misty and chilly. And I, I walk out to take some pictures. The guys are, are looking a little cold standing around. And I said, well, just start a fire, fellas, and I'll be back in a few minutes. Uh, I came back about 15 minutes later, and all the guys are looking at their feet. And being a father, I know exactly what that means, that they have either done something or not done something that they should have done or not have done, and they didn't. So I said, hey, look, man, what's what's wrong? And Again, they looked down at their feet, and then I, I realized here are five active-duty Navy SEALs that did not know how to start a fire. They just didn't know how to do it because they're city kids. So I went over 
and I showed them how to do it. Just peel off the top layer of the moist stuff, and there's dry, dry uh, material underneath. And that started me thinking and paying attention that, holy smokes, the world has changed and my country has changed. Things that our grandfathers, and that's really about where I cut it off, great-grandfathers, you know, I do not know how to make a horseshoe. I have no idea how to do that. Nor do I know how to make a bow and arrow. I know how to shoot one, but not how to make one. So really, our grandfather's era is when things started to change. World War II is when uh, the American male left the farm and really became more urbanized. And that's where we forgot how to do things. So I think it's, it's important to have these little books. And as you said, it's entertaining. But at the same time, there's a lot of philosophical things in there. What does it mean to be a man? So do you think it's the urbanization and, uh, it, uh, and technology that's led us down this path uh, to lost, lost ideas of manhood? Well, sure, it's both. As well? Right. I mean, I don't, I don't think we have to be hunter-gatherers. You know what I mean? I don't have to go out and, and whop a deer over the head and cook it over a fire. But at the same time, when you become more dependent on things like a grocery store, for instance, or an automobile, you forget what it takes to actually do things and produce them for yourself. And that's when it, when it becomes a problem. Uh, when we talk about the urbanization of folks, really that's, that's what's at the core of it. It makes life easier for everybody and therefore we don't understand the hardships. Uh, another thing is the technology. So right now, we are, you and I have never met in person. But I feel like we have a very good personal relationship. But we're looking through a screen, you know what I mean? Right, right, but right now, right now, I might not be wearing pants. Uh, and, and, just, and you not. just don't know, do you? <laughs> <laughs> right. So th these technologies that we have, you know, it's a two-dimensional view of another human being. And people are even uncomfortable now with this. This video thing makes people very uncomfortable. A phone call to an 18-year-old now is insanity. So texting somebody, right, right, right. what do you get? So right now you're seeing 25% of my body. You can see some of my gestures, but you can't tell if I didn't shower because I didn't I, uh, smell or I've got bad breath or I smoke cigarettes. You can smell. You don't know anything about me. I, I intentionally set up this background so you only see what I want you to see. So, and, and we consider this a very intrusive method of communication now. Now go to a phone call. I could be completely naked. I could be, you know, riding a horse in my backyard through a pond without pants on, which would be great. But you wouldn't know because I'm on the phone, right? Is that what you did last time we spoke? <laughs> I did, actually. You know, my back is still sore. I can't believe I brought that up. But I did anyway. So, you know, it's a little police involvement. No, I, I, I shouldn't bring it up. My lawyer tells me I shouldn't talk about it. So it's my lawyer that I write about in the book, I love Yeah, it. right, right, right. Oh, my gosh. But so now take that to a text message. So in a text message, you can't see or hear anything other than the words, the letters that I put on there. Now take the text message and make it Twitter. You've got 144 characters to right. communicate a meaningful message to somebody. So if you don't think that that has had a detrimental effect on our interpersonal communications, then you just don't understand interpersonal communications. Yes. So the combination of urbanization and the uh, integration of technologies that are designed for us to be able to actually reach out and touch people have separated us unintentionally. It's, it's actually interesting speaking of that. My wife and I, uh, we went on a date, you know, date night, you know, husband went on a date night, and we watched a young couple who seemingly were on their first date. You know, you can kind of tell. 
And right. for the first 10 minutes of, of their date, they're engaged in a conversation, maybe 15. Right. And the rest of right. the time, they were texting someone, I don't, each other, yeah. the friends. I was, like, how can you create intimacy, bond with another person if you're doing that kind of stuff? It just kind of blows my mind. And it kind of scares me for our culture. Sure, and it should. Uh, there's a, a very intentional reason that the final chapter of my book, which is over your, as I look at you, left, but it's your right shoulder. Shameless plug right there. Thanks. Um, there's a reason that that last chapter is titled Campfire Stories. Um, I have learned as many things about life standing around a campfire as I have had or as I've learned in a classroom. So around the campfire... It's a 360-degree view of a human being. It's not a this little thing that we're doing now or a text or a phone call. And generally speaking, when you're out where you're having a campfire, your phone doesn't work anyway, so you can't use that other form of communication. So you're actually forced to look at another human being or, or several other human beings, perform a function, which keeping a fire burning, uh, in an environment where other things are taking place around you. But you have to look at that person. And when you talk, they listen. And when they talk, you listen. Um, it's really a great way to get to know people. When, when older men speak, if younger men are smart enough, they'll listen. Mm -hmm. And that is how they'll learn. What, what is the difference between being lectured to in, uh, in a Harvard classroom and sitting around a campfire having someone tell you stories of life? What's the difference? About sixty-five thousand dollars a year. Well, That's the difference. <laughs> and I was going to say, having spoken at Harvard before, uh, I prefer the campfire because I would imagine the people on the other side of the campfire are probably more intelligent. <laughs> but like, we won't go there. You would. <laughs> you don't know, yeah. So I mean, it's, we are we have become so fast in our society that we have actually retarded our movement. Mm -hmm. um, it's we are. We are reaching the point where we are incapable of deciphering the amount of information that we are capable of receiving. So we are overwhelmed. We can't process things that fast. This whole multitasking is junk. If you look at the real studies of yeah, what yeah. the productivity of level of people are that are multitasking, it's, it's, it's incredibly low you know, because so they can't do it. Right. Speaking of that, no, I think it's interesting because uh – Anywhere you go now, there's noise in the environment. You're, you're in a cab, mm -hmm. there's now a television. You're in an elevator, right. there's a television. You can't right. find any location in the public sphere, almost, that doesn't have some kind of noise to drown out your right. ability to think or even be with another person. It's right. another disturbing trend. I, You know, my last job, my second last job, was as a uh, senior staff NCO at the uh, Special Operations Command Europe. And we would start with an idea of something. We would identify something that we thought needed to be changed. Let's say Russian involvement somewhere, as an example. And I would do hundreds of hours of homework. I mean hundreds of hours and produce hundreds of pages of documentation uh, using the MDMP, which is Military Decision Making Process. So I had a completely down from the ground to a satellite view of not only the problem set, but all the different variables that 
uh, affect that and then all the different potential solutions and then the branches and sequels that would come from that solution meaning something that is uh, a logical extension of your actions and then something just kind of the, the wildcat ones right but by the time we would brief this to somebody that can make a decision it would be really maybe three powerpoint slides and that's all they're getting so it's an arrow this way, you know, a little map here, a star there, whatever the heck it is. And these guys and gals have to make decisions off of that. And you know what? They made a lot of really bad decisions. Not within my chain of command. Uh, General Mike Repass, I'll drop a dime on that guy. He is a uh, retired two-star Army Special Forces general. I, I spoke to him, uh, spoke about him in the SEAL fit interview. Fantastic soldier, soldiers, warrior, understood his job from his the soles of his shoes to the stars on his hat uh he made some very very good decisions but when you get in these these ethereal spheres within our our government it's nearly impossible to make a good decision because of all the noise they can't sit down and spend five or ten hours studying a problem they have some staffer doing it come in give them a 30 second brief or a minute and a half brief and then they're supposed to make a decision that can change geopolitics. And you're seeing right now the result of very poor decision-making on our part. I would imagine it's, it's actually getting worse uh, as young people grow into these positions. Uh, their attention mm -hmm. spans, I would imagine, is, is minimized because of Twitter right. and texting and all that stuff like that. So who, who is even spending the 100 hours to create the bigger map and picture that then gets brought mm -hmm. down into a smaller decision-making map? I'm hoping that's still a, at least the bigger picture is still occurring in terms of you know doing the research. Or well, I, I, are, are we having trouble there as well? Yes, the answer <laughs> is yes. And a lot of stuff, Mike. I'll tell you in that book, dude. Those things take time, and and igloo doesn't manufacture itself. Mm -hmm. In the process of making an igloo, which is part of the outdoor life, whatever the chapter is, I don't know. It's just funny to write. I just, I made an igloo, man. I was so excited about it. I just had to tell other people, I'm an actual igloo. And if you follow the steps in that book, you can actually make an igloo for real. But part of that is you have to identify where you're at, look at the type of snow, and then you stomp down, unless you're in like a windswept tundra, but in a regular area like New Hampshire or somewhere, you have to stomp down this crystalline snow, and then you can't do anything for half an hour. You have to sit and wait for the snow to congeal. And what are you going to do in that half an hour? You're in a place where you're building the igloo. Do you think you're going to, like, tweet people? <laughs> no. <laughs> you're going to talk to the dude or gal next to you. Right, right, right. So when you do these things, fishing takes time. You know what I mean? That's why I call it fishing. So when we step back just a little bit, I think that we're able to really become uh, better human beings because we can actually take time to get to know the human beings with us. The statistic effect of three people in a room and you know this, is, is fantastic. You come up with things and ideas and you understand what's taking place around you and the potentiality of the person and of a child and really do quality problem solving if you just try to solve one problem at a time right. and not worry about making these grand decisions and waving my hand and all these crazy things that we do now um, as people. They, when we stop... We actually accelerate. Slow yeah. is smooth and smooth is fast. Smooth is fast. That is a, that is a traditional SEAL team saying. And do you, do you want to know where that comes from? Sure, please. 
it's, it's from shooting. So I, when we learn how to draw and shoot our pistols, we break it down into individual segments. So there's nine to 13 different steps of going from holding a rifle to shooting someone with your pistol. And we break them down and practice them in individual micro steps so that by the time you're finished doing that, you are so smooth, it looks like you're hardly moving, but each one of those micro segments is attached to the next one. You're hardly moving, but that bullet is flying out of the barrel of your pistol before you know it. It's fantastic. So when you're jerking, Right, when you're jerking from one step to another, it's it's not smooth and it's not fast. So you're yeah. creating like an unconscious competency. You are. You're actually you are actually slowing down time is how I look at that. That how we perceive time, you know, no one really can quantify how we perceive time. But when I've been doing things uh, before that have been really remarkably stressful that I've practiced hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, it's as if time is slowing down. Meaning, I understand that there's a the wrong sound that comes out of my rifle, and I realize I have to get my pistol. Well, I can compress that time. It seems like it's forever because I've rehearsed each one of these steps, so they're all incredibly smooth. And the next thing you know, bam! To someone else, it looks like the Matrix. It's very funny. That's cool. This I mean, is actually a great, really a great segue because you actually have a sure. section of your book on weapons. That is right. You do, but uh, let's let's add the humor. Humor into this before mm-hmm. you jump into the weapons section because you okay. have disclaimers yep. from your uh, lawyer, so we might want to make one now. <laughs> right. Well, guns are heavy, so you could straight back lifting them. Uh, if you put them in the freezer, they get cold, and they're made of metal, part of them. So if you stick your tongue to them, it will stick. If you have uh, chipped it before, you may get a sliver because some of them uh, have wood portions of them. If you drop them and they hit your foot, it will hurt. And no matter how hard you try, once you shoot the bullet, you can't make it come back. I think that's that's about it for guns. There's a, there's uh, other stuff for bow and arrows and knives also. Right. And just for background purposes, because I, I mm-hmm. have to laugh in all all, all your chapters. Uh, uh-huh. wh- why did you have to put in some disclaimers? Uh, on well, I I wrote one in the beginning. And I'm like, okay, you know, this is, there's, I can't, I don't understand why I'm still above the dirt. I should have been killed many times. It's right in the beginning. You know, it's, it's like the thing that you hear on uh, That's Incredible, which I remember a television show from the 80s. But uh, so I write this thing, the lawyer, we, you have to give it to a lawyer. And he's like, there are not enough disclaimers in this book. Someone could pick up your book and they could think that it is a navigational guide and then go into the wilderness and, and die of uh, exposure. And I'm speaking to him, and I'm like, okay, number one, you're getting $600 an hour, so I think you probably want to stretch this out. But two, the whole purpose of this book is to have people take responsibility for their actions. And by putting in more cautions and warnings as we go along, I'm removing their ability to take responsibility for their actions. So I got a little miffed, and sometimes I can be a smart aleck. So each one of these chapters that have, has anything that can even remotely be dangerous. I wish I had done like making ice cubes or something, but each one of them, the, that beginning caution warning goes directly to my lawyer. And what is interesting about that is that the only thing that he really took umbrage in or with in the entire book is that I didn't explain in detail enough how to make eggs. Eggs. Like the lawyer had some egg fetish thing that where he's like, there are so many more methods of preparing eggs. And then he went off the top of his head. I kid you not. 
went through like 16 different steps to making separate forms of scrambled eggs. And I'm like, are you kidding me? But that, that was his, his big thing. Uh, uh, cautions and warning to, to remove all res personal responsibility for people. And then I didn't explain enough how to make eggs. So I'll be honest, I'm going to look you right in the camera right now. If you are buying this book to learn how to make scrambled eggs better, get a different book because it's not in there for you. If you want to learn a little bit about manhood, the difference between being a male and a man, uh, pick up the book. But the egg thing is not in it. Actually, that's great. Uh, you know, one of the hashtags for your book is boys to men or male to man. Yeah. Right. Um, tell me, how does it move you from being a, a male to a man or a boy to a, a man? Okay. Well, the, I speak to a lot of folks about this, and they think that there's a checklist. Like, once I can change a tire, once I can sight in a gun, once I can uh, catch a fish or something, I'm, I'm a man. And that is, that is not, not what that means. What, what, it is, what it means to go from a boy to to a man, the, the developmental evolutionary process of that is really the understanding of your place in the world, what you can and cannot do, but more importantly, what you should do. So men, by the time you get to be a man, you should understand what you should be doing. And that will make you a male, understanding what you should be doing. What makes you a man is actually doing it. Doing it. And when I say man, it's there's a lot of people that get heartburn there. Oh, it's it's a misogynistic sort of thing, you know, a woman hating deal, and uh, which it's some the first time I heard that I'm like, I'm not touching you at all. Why are you calling me a misogynist? And they're like, you're an idiot. And I said, thank you very much. That's a joke, Mike. Um, it's masseuse, vice misogynist. But um, right, sorry, no. <laughs> are you with me? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Good. They're just and, like one step, one step behind the... And his humor comes out in the book, too. <laughs> so, yeah, they say, you know, it's this misogynist thing, the book of man. I'm like, you know, man itself, it's mankind. Mm -hmm. uh, girls and women should know how to do everything in this book. Mm -hmm. Everything. Uh, and it could extend to kiss a girl if, if there happen to be uh, lesbians. That's part of the book is kissing a girl. Right. But so I think... Uh, to me, the most important thing that, that differentiates a, a child to an adult, uh, a young man to an older man, is understanding what should be done, understanding your place in the world, more importantly, doing it. When I speak about responsibility, I got your back, you know, people say, I got your back. You know, that doesn't mean anything. Um, it really doesn't. I got your back. Is your back going to do something that, that needs to not be done or it needs to be corrected? In the civilian world, it's nothing. In the SEAL teams, if you tell someone you got your back, that literally means you're facing in the opposite direction that they're facing. You're holding a gun and you're covering them to make sure that they're not shot in the back. That's important. That is real. That is taking responsibility. That is identifying what needs to take place and actually doing it. And do you need to be in the military to be a man? No. Do you need to have a gun to be a man? No. Do you need to take responsibility for your actions? Yes. Do you need to try to make your society a better place? Yes. Do you need to try to help your family out? Yes. Those are all important things to being a man. In, in terms of the weapons section, um, yeah. I'm thinking, like, listen to what you just said now, sheepdog comes to mind and it doesn't require sure. you to be a police officer or, or the military. Absolutely not. And even, you don't even necessarily have to possess weapons, although it's probably useful to have skills in their use. Right. Talk about 
the requirement for a man to be a sheepdog, not only for his family, but for the broader community. Okay. Yeah. Um, do you think, I mean, we talk about that, that became popularized by uh, American Sniper, Chris Kyle, who I, I was in the training cadre that trained him. I don't know him specifically, personally. Um, that would just be a lie if I said I did, but he was a face in the crowd the guys that we trained. Very nice guy. Did fantastic things for America. But a sheepdog, that just means you're, you're protecting someone. You're, you're watching out for them. You're doing what needs to be done. And I, this sounds goofy, but when I see um, people that are in need of things, like well, I will just use a woman, and please again, don't think this is some big sexist statement. I see a lady drop her grocery bag. I stop and I help her and pick it up. Or if she drops it in the aisle that, or the the uh, road that's going across from the grocery store to the parking lot, and I see a car coming, I'll stop and I'll put my hand up to stop the car. So it, this sheepdog thing doesn't have to be, and then I was walking and there was this gang and they jumped out and they had knives and then I had a bat and I took a knife in the shoulder. You know, It doesn't have to be all that. that just, it's a mindset where you are, you're, you are conscious of your surroundings, mm-hmm. you're conscious of other people in your surroundings, and then if they need help, you help them. It's it's very it's a very simple concept. It's actually reaching out and doing what needs to be done when it needs to be done. But that takes commitment. Yeah. yeah. So when I talk about commitment in the book, commitment means you are willing to get punched in the nose. And does that physically mean getting punched in the nose? It does not have to. Businessmen are committed to things all the time. They risk things that I would not risk. These entrepreneurs that go out and they're crazy. They if they don't do what they said they're going to do, like I'm going to make this or, or produce this or sell that, they lose their house. Mm-hmm. That's a real commitment. That is a true risk that they are taking. Um, so the sheepdog thing, yes, it's fantastic. Can, can you be a, a sheepdog? Yes. Are you ever going to carry a gun around and shoot somebody? Hopefully not. But that doesn't mean that you can't stop in front of that car and put your hand up. Hey, hold on a minute. Does that make sense? It, it completely, and it seems to me yeah. that it's, it's the golden rule of, uh, of all religious traditions that we have on this globe. Well, that's do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's the golden rule. Right. Like treat, <laughs> you right. have a commitment to take care of other people as you'd like to be treated, and, you know, treat other people as you'd like to be treated, which would entail doing exactly what you said, helping sure. other people out. And it yeah, it's we, I don't know if it's where we think we're going to offend somebody. Mm-hmm. That's the easy way. Oh, I didn't want to offend him. I'll, I'll be frank with you because you're a friend of mine. I don't know who's listening here. But the, the vast majority of the time that we don't do something, it's because we're afraid. Okay. Yeah. We're simply afraid. And then we'll make up all these excuses about, you know, this. And I was concerned about, you know, their safety. So I wanted to make sure that I did something else. Or I was calling 911 for them or all this other stuff. It's, it's because you're afraid. When you see someone yelling at somebody else and they're obviously uh, agitated and there's a potential for a fight and you don't do anything about it, you're afraid. I've been there before. You know what I mean? I've been afraid. I've seen things take place that I should have stopped that I did not. I've seen things get to a point where I could have stopped them physically and I did not. I've started things that other people should have stopped and I would have shut them down too. You know what I mean? No one's perfect. Uh but we have to make an effort. If we don't make an effort, what are we doing? What are we here for, pal? For real? Good question. Um, so, sheepdog aside, and all the weapons mm-hmm. training that could be useful for anyone. Sure. 
Um, mm-hmm. y- your book is divided into other sections as well. And what's kind of really unique about your book, and I've actually never seen it done by anyone else, is you have sections written by friends. Mm-hmm. Talk about some of your friends and, and how you came up with the idea of having them write certain sections. Okay. I thought that was pretty brilliant. Yeah, well, check it out, man. Um, no man is an island, are they? No man stands alone. They don't. And I've got some of the, the coolest friends in the world. And one of the things I like to do a lot is to tell stories about my friends mm-hmm. because they're just awesome. And um, I don't do everything really well. There's a lot of things that I don't do well. I mean, I just, I don't, I'm not good at them. And so I figured, hey, if I'm going to talk to people about doing things well, shouldn't I have someone that knows what the hell they're talking about, talk to them about it. So like, for instance, my brother, Kurt uh, Van Orden, he does MPAC, uh, he's a packaging guy in Washington State. He taught me how to change a tire. So who better to explain, because I can change the crap out of a tire, like NASCAR, standby. Uh, Ricky Bobby, yeah, I'm on you. Yeah, done. Nice. But uh, yeah, so... <laughs> I had him write that, uh, just how to change a tire. Jody Neal, a friend of mine who is a uh, karate master. He's a Kyoshi. Uh, he teaches people how to punch people for a living. Who better than to do that? My cousin Damien Roth, whose uh, daughter Lucy is doing very well, by the way. She just finished her last round of chemo therapy. That's in the book. She's doing fine. Um, he's been an MMA fighter for like 12 years. So who better to uh, show you how to make a fist so you don't break your own fist than that guy. Um, my friend John Sheck, actor, very handsome guy. One, uh, no, he's 10 days younger than I am. And he looks like he's 25, which, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not comfortable with that because I, I look like Father Christmas. I, I'm only 18. You have which a little gray in your beard, I see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not bleach either, pal. Uh, that's earned. And this hair, check that out. Look at that. What is that? Are you kidding me? Well, at hey. least you fixed it for this uh, interview. Uh, I did. It's yeah. Good. Never mind. I just wear a rainbow wig. But um, so John teaches how to kiss a girl because he does that for a living as an actor. Um, Julie's his, his wife. Cam's his son. Great family. Uh, John Voigt, another friend of mine. He's uh, an actor. He uh, is in the campfire story section. And he tells a story about uh, how he was really bamboozled as a younger man in the 60s to think that America was not the place to be. And then he has spent the last you know, 40 years, four decades, trying to make up for that. So if we as men are humble enough to understand, willing enough to seek people out who do know how to do things, and then we're smart enough to listen to them, then we should also uh, feel comfortable telling other people that this dude over here knows how to do this better than me. Right, right. And right. I'm going to ask him to tell you about it. That's, I mean, to me, it, I wanted a way to show the world these incredibly cool guys that would never have a voice. I mean, you know, John and John, the two actor guys, they have voices, obviously, that's what they do. But everybody else that's in there, uh, Dave Bell, no voice. Matt Height, friend of mine, retired Navy SEAL, no voice. Hank Paul, behind the seals or behind the scenes sort of guy. Uh, Brian Montgomery, another friend of mine, fantastic guy, Benchmade Knives. They wouldn't be able to get to an audience and share some of their knowledge that they have that they've accumulated over time. And I just thought that that would be a, a great way to do that. Why not introduce the world to some really good dudes if you can do it? Yeah, and you, and you definitely did. I mean, those those sections written by them were, were 
are awesome. Uh, yeah, readers. <laughs> they're the only ones that are well written. <laughs> Trust. You're not so bad. Both <laughs> for that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, those are excellent sections, um, and I'm is you know really cool of you to provide them the outlet to talk, tell their story, and, and inform people. But I think it leads to something that's missing in our culture, and that's mentorship. Sure. You know, we don't have systems in place where you can look to, I don't want to say an elder, but, you know, someone older, it could be right. an elder, who, you know, who is wiser, has more experience in a particular shmi, you know, area. Right. Um, and you could go learn from, you know, in a very humbling way. And it seems to me that this generation, which you are uh, teaching to, um, mm -hmm. for some reason, culturally speaking, lacks that humbleness. Like, they're willing to recognize the limits of their own knowledge and experience and, and look to guidance from others, yeah. which is un very unfortunate. Well, there's, the, I mean, if you, you want to uh, deconstruct that problem, if you look at the, the lack of trades in America now, I mean, it used to be an apprenticeship, then a right. journeyman, a master. I mean, it's pretty right. simple. That's, that's how that stuff works. Let me give you an example about me being stupid. This is great. Um, so when uh, I was a younger guy, I checked into SEAL Team 4 in Corman, which I was for a long time. We have to cover medical or cover evolutions from a medical perspective, meaning if guys are shooting somewhere, there's always a corpsman in training that's sitting somewhere that's safe, that can't get shot, blown up in case something happens. Because I was a new guy at uh, Team 4, they sent me up to one of the bases to sit for three weeks while these guys uh, learn demolition training. So they're about 200 meters away with a big berm in between us, so I can't get blown up. And you just sit there and read books a lot. Corman are very well read in the SEAL teams. Anyway, so you get bored after a while, and I took a uh, four by eight piece of plywood, I traced a human body out, the right size silhouette, put a, a hole, a circle here on the throat, and then one over a heart. And uh, so I started throwing my knife at there. And after three weeks, dude, I mean, I was like a circus performer. Right. <laughs> and then this old cat comes walking by and he's got big Coke bottle glasses on. He's kind of shuffling around and he goes, you know, doc, you, you'd never throw your knife in combat. And, and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, you know, whatever, old man, you know, zip it. But I didn't say anything out loud. Thank God. And I, I got to tell you, this guy had a hand like this. Can you see that? Uh-huh. Okay, so he had nine fingers. So maybe three years, four years later, I'm reading this book, and it was like SEALs in Vietnam or some crazy stuff. And it was um, this thing telling about some big gangbusters gunfight they're in. This is prior to me ever being in combat, by the way. And they said, and this is when Chuck Fellers got his fingers shot off by the Viet Cong. And that's when we started calling him Fingers Fellers. And I'm like, yeah, like, yeah. holy crap, this old dude who came, because he was like 60-something by then, right? Which, 60 years old as a SEAL, you're like 150. I mean, we have like dog years for us, you know what I mean? That's how We beat our bodies to nothing, like NFL players. Anyway, so here's this old guy, Coke bottle glasses and all this stuff, who had been slaying dudes. I mean, slaying them hard years i mean i was still pooping in my pants when this guy was doing this right but i as a young man i didn't take the time to realize that that is a walking library of uh information concerning warfare and i have the ability an innate ability to go wait a minute 
I need to start paying attention to this. And that's when I really started to, they always say respect your elders. That's when I really started to respect my elders and understand that they have so much to offer, but I have to accept that gift. That is a gift. Old, Old people are always trying to talk to us and we're always blowing them off. Yeah, I'll get to you later, you know, whatever. They're trying to give us something and that is the wisdom of the ages. We don't have that. They've got that. And the only way we're going to get it is if we accept the gift and listen and humble ourselves, slow our, slow our roll down, because old people don't walk fast. So slowly, slowly, they don't. You know why? Because you're backwards. I'm figuring this out now. I'm like, wow. They're, actually, John Voight said that to me <laughs> the other day. I was with him up in Hollywood. He's such a nice guy. He goes, you know, I, I always wondered why old people walk slow like this. And well, it's damn it because my back hurts. <laughs> I'm like, well, thank you, John. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, that's we, we as older people, you and I, middle age ish folks, um, have always said that, you know, these damn kids and we're curmudgeons. I understand why, curmur- cur- why people are curmudgeons. It's hard to say because we look at kids and they're like, oh, they don't want to listen to me. Right. So it, it's, it is a dual responsibility. Us as older guys need to listen to really older guys. And then we have to be patient enough. And I struggle with this too. You know, I'm a father. I've raised four kids. We have to be patient enough and communicate with our children. And, you know, I mentor probably 30 kids around the country. Just randomly. Yeah, I mean, it's just something I do. Uh, they write to me and their parents write to me. and It's not like a life coach or whatever that is, you know, paid friend stuff. Um, it's just, it's a responsibility. If I have the ability to help these kids, then I should. But... It takes patience. That's awesome. Yeah. Good for you, man. Good for them. Right on. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, so. there, I would be remiss if I didn't jump into the one section. But before I jump into this one section, I just want to point out, mm-hmm. you, know, you have sections on outdoor skills and automotive and first aid and weapons, as we've already mentioned, and other mm-hmm. such fun things. And definitely encourage people to buy your book and read all the sections. But you mm-hmm. have one section that my wife uh, would, would plug the, the, bat, the highest that's the okay. fancy stuff section. Fancy stuff. <laughs> yeah, man. Oh, <laughs> so it's not just all about kicking ass and being outdoors and fixing stuff. It's also right. about fancy stuff. Well, tell us about fancy stuff and why it's important for men. Well, I mean, what is the, the Renaissance man? Have you ever heard of the Renaissance man? Got to be a Renaissance man. Well, <laughs> no, it's true. You should. I think any any human being doesn't have to be a dude. Any human being should be able to go from, you know, mowing a lawn or cutting down a tree or hunting or any of that stuff to sitting in a room with people and having a discussion about poetry. Uh, If we slow down, turn off the television, which we still, it's been 18 years now since we've had uh, cable or 19 years. You cut it off 19 years ago? Yeah, we just don't let that in the house. It's junk. Yeah, it's junk, man. So, uh if you do that and you're not being pumped full of all this crap, Seinfeld, whatever, I've never seen a complete episode of Seinfeld. So if you shut that off, what else are you going to do? You're going to talk to people and you're going to read a book. So you should be able to do that. And if you're going to go out somewhere, you have to be able to tie a tie, right? As a guy. So learn how to tie a tie. You should shine your shoes. These guys, they wear these six, seven, eight hundred, twelve hundred dollars shoes and they don't shine them. You know what that tells me? It tells me they're a dick. That's right, because they are just trying to rub that into my face because I can't afford those shoes. So uh, it's very important that we are refined. 
Uh, how do you make a cocktail? Why would you make a cocktail? What is the purpose of a cocktail? It's something interesting that you have. It's not like you don't chug it like you're having a Miller Lite at a uh, NASCAR race. It's something designed to sit with you and hold as you discuss things with another person next to you. That's why you have the cocktail. It lightens up your attitude a little bit. And plus, if anyone in your listening audience has a problem with alcohol, you know what? I address that directly in the book. I'd much rather have you skip that portion of fancy stuff rather than wind up in a cold pool of your own vomit. So, good advice. That's a joke. <laughs> Yeah, so, hey, fancy stuff, man. It's important. So, again, and your wife, I'm assuming, because she's your wife identifies as a heterosexual female, that she would want, when she met a guy, that he would be well-dressed, that he has done laundry so he doesn't smell, that he's his shoes are shine, which means that he's paid enough attention, he knows he's going out, that he's taking the time to do this, which means he actually cares about the person he's going to go meet that he would be able to appropriately order something, and that finally, if things work out, that he'd be able to give her a kiss. That's not some slobbering, uh, apish thing, right? Right, right, right. So yeah, we need to be able to, go ahead. No, I was gonna say, I gotta give my wife credit. Uh, I I was, I don't know if I call myself a slobbish ape person, but uh, not with the kissing stuff, but um, when we we first got together, she actually went through my closet and threw out half of Mm -hmm. my clothes. Um, and made me go. Let to, her do it. To Let her go, do it. Go to the store, and she bought me. You know, she made me get all new clothes. At the time, I was like, "This is you know kind of weird." But retrospectively, especially in light of this conversation, it, it was a very appropriate thing to do, and I definitely appreciated that about her. Yeah, you know what? Here's something that I'll share with you. A little one here. That again, from my perspective, my worldview. Uh, We always talk as a culture and a society about diversity and how important diversity is. Diversity this and that and that. We have diversity officers in in the military. We have diversity departments in different schools and all this stuff, right? I mean, it's very important. And that's because when there are things that are different, when they get together, you know, they become very strong, right? That's, That's a neat little visual, right? So there you go, right? So the very, the most basic form of diversified human beings is a man and a woman. So it's a heterosexual man and a heterosexual woman because you cannot get farther apart than that and still be in the same species. You can't. Two gay men, two gay women, gay man, gay woman, you know what I mean? Those are actually closer together than a heterosexual man and a heterosexual woman. So the very core of diversity the core of strength is are those two building blocks. And that's why, again, this book of man is important from my perspective. And please don't anyone be offended by that if they don't share the same, you know, gender identity issues and all that stuff. I get it. But this is from my perspective written for really the majority of the American public. When we can clearly identify, we understand who we are, and uh, understand where we want to be, then we go do that. It's really that simple. But we have to understand and be who we are. 
people are always there. You know, it's just nebulous. Everything's on a sliding scale of this and that and all that stuff. Well, you know what? If you take enough time, I wrote to some guy the other day and I said, look, if you are still, if you're over the age of 10 and you're still searching for truth, you're looking in the wrong place. We inherently know what is right and wrong. We inherently know how we feel. And yeah, sure, they change a little bit here, a little bit there. But at your core, you really know who you are. So then just go do that. And that's my buddy, uh, his name is Chris Beck. Have you heard of him? Chris Chris Beck is the first transgender Christine, seal. Chris, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, I'd call it Chris. Anyway. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, but I know who you're referring to. Right. So, you know, do I know about all that stuff? No, I don't. I mean, I was one of the people that <laughs> I got this. You know, I, I'm on LinkedIn, and so I get this. Chris Beck has changed his profile picture. And so it's like a picture of Chris wearing a dress with long hair. And I'm like, oh, you know, I could see a seal doing that, right? And I'm like, <laughs> so I write him back, and I'm like, hey, big change there, haha. And he's like, yeah, I just couldn't take it. And I'm like, oh, boy, he talked like that. Yeah, I just couldn't take it. And so I write him back. I'm like, oh, you're serious. I mean, I thought he was doing it as a joke. That's why I mean seals would do something like that right, as right. a joke. Right. So I said, yeah, you're, you're serious. And he said, yeah, man. And I'm like, wow, okay, well, that's a big deal. Um, so do I understand that? No. Do I understand that that's the way that Chris felt? Yeah. Um, and, you know, he or she or whatever, however you want to refer to the gender thing with Chris right now, um, took a lot of heavies from people that he liked that were of, including his wife. You know, his, his wife left him and his kids don't speak to him anymore. Um, so there's something there. There, there is truly something there. Do I understand it? No. Uh, is it part of my identity? No. Is it part of his identity? Yes. The importance of this diatribe is that once you figure out exactly who you are, that, that's what's important. It's not what you are. Do you have external genitalia or not? Mm -hmm. I don't know. And does it matter? No. It's who you are. What's inside of you that's important. And what is interesting is that I am also generally associated with the conservative Republican, you know, folks, right? And the people that I find giving me the hardest time, you know, when I say stuff like that are, you know, uh, allegedly these folks that have these real um, open thoughts about politics and all these things. And to me, being open-minded means being open-minded. And I have, I have friends that I'll stand next to, and it doesn't matter what they're wearing. It doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter what the color of their skin is. And if you look at the very back of that book, there's something very important that I wrote intentionally. I waited to the very end. And what I want people to get from reading that book, above all things, is that they judge people by the content of their character. And that is a paraphrase of Dr. Martin Luther King. Because that is one of the, one of the finest statements ever written by uh, any American. And I love Theodore Roosevelt, but that crushes the vast majority of stuff that, that Teddy said. And if we look at all the problems, and this is going circling right back to the beginning of our conversation, if we look at all the problems that are taking place, it's because we are failing to judge people, judging, because judging's bad. No, it's not. It's great. That's why you don't put your hand on the stove. You judge it. It's going to burn your hand. So if we judge people on the content of their character, as we understand it, by viewing their actions, not just their words, but by their actions, then we will understand what should be done and what should not be done, who we can trust, who we can't trust, 
what to do and whatnot. I mean, it's very simple to me. I guess people that have never been in situations where it's like very important that you make the right decisions, meaning you trust the right person or you will die, don't, don't quite get it. But I would hope that more of them do just by reading something simple and being humble enough to listen to it. You know what I mean? Right, right. Yeah. Well, uh, Derek, this has been great. Yes, sir. Um, yeah. We are actually going to do another one with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Schaefer on national security foreign policy. Okay. So we're Love. Te- yeah, teasing the listening audience for uh, another time in the very near future. I actually talked okay. to Tony today about that. Um, but in terms of this one, um, I mm-hmm. know you're on Twitter. Right. Uh, what's your Twitter handle? Good. Seal, uh, Seal Book of Man. And I had to do that because uh, there's a guy in Croatia that took Book of Man already. Mm-hmm. Right. So <laughs> Seal Book of Man on Twitter. Uh, also on Facebook, Seal Book of Man. The book is available at walmart.com right now. It's moving to Amazon shortly. It's nice. on Amazon right now, but those are guys that are uh, scalping it. Oh, really? So you're, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's going for 50 bucks a copy on Amazon, and it's uh, $15 at Walmart. So say what you want about Walmart. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's how they can reach me. I respond. If you send me a tweet... I will personally respond to you and welcome you aboard. I do that to everybody. Um, I think it's important enough if you're going to talk to me that I I take the time to talk back to you. But uh, I appreciate you having me on here. And I'm looking forward to to, uh, talking to Lieutenant Colonel Schaaf. There's so many things going on today where the chickens are coming home to roost. And uh, it it is, we live in interesting times. Which is a curse and blessing. It is a curse and a blessing. It gives you something to watch on television, but at the same time, it makes you wring your hands. Yeah. Well, yeah. Derek, thank you very much for your time. Love your book. Thank and, you very uh, much. I'll be talking to you really soon. Right on. I appreciate you having me on here. And all you people out there, take care. Be a man, not a male. Nice.